Welcome back to Season 2 of Built for Earth. To kick things off, we are welcoming a special guest, Dr. Morgan Bazilian, a world energy and international policy expert. The conversation will provide context to the global energy and climate change landscape and will illustrate the interdisciplinary challenges our world faces and how we might overcome them. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Built for Earth, where we are spotlighting innovators and experts taking on climate change. Today our guest joining the show is Dr. Morgan Bazilian, a world-renowned expert in energy-related international affairs, policy, and investments. Currently, he's the director of the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines. Previously, he was the lead energy specialist at the World Bank, a senior diplomat at the United Nations, and the European Union's lead negotiator on low-carbon technology at the UN Climate Negotiations. To date, he has published more than 120 articles in journals including Nature, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, and the Proceedings of National Academy of Science. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Sam, great to be with you. Great. Well, to get started, I want to ask, this This podcast has focused on for-profit startups developing climate-related technology. However, your experience lies primarily in the public sector and academia. Because of that, you have a very different perspective of the energy and climate landscape from other guests who have joined the show. And so would you be able to share how you see policy and technology working together more harmoniously in the future to make the energy transition happen? Sure, Sam. It's a, it's a great big question, of course. So for your listeners, I guess the different perspective I bring, as you said, is I've spent most of my career in public service and moved to the School of Mines from the World Bank and the United Nations system, where I've been working on energy uh, energy systems all over the world for my whole career. But while the World Bank has the word bank in it, it's not a typical bank by any means and doesn't function in the same way as commercial banks. And so a lot of people in the startup world or the clean tech world are at least in OECD or the U.S. are not familiar with that kind of financing and that kind of banking. So I'll speak to that a little bit. And when you think about the overall energy transition, I think of it in terms of something that's largely taking place in developing economies. That's a little bit of a different perspective than I imagine the bulk of your guests in the clean tech space, which tends to be in the United States, very focused on some of the big cities like San Francisco or the Bay and Silicon Valley. And the discussion is rather parochial in some ways. In other words, it focuses on a very small geographic area and a relatively small set of problems around how energy transitions are perceived in the United States. And so my point about the energy transition Transition or transitions being a developing and emerging economy story is that the the actual growth in energy demand and therefore investment and therefore innovation and jobs is largely going to take place in in those other economies where energy demand 
in the U.S. and other OECD countries, Japan and European member states, is largely flat or even declining. Now, of course, there's lots of innovation to happen in OECD countries, and it's exciting to see. But what I'd like to see is more attention and development of those innovations and funding for those innovations in outside of the United States and outside of Europe. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking a, a nuanced conversation and zooming out to a thousand feet and saying, look, energy access more than even just a transition to clean energy is, is the first step of the energy transition or energy transitions. And would you be able to speak a little bit more to how your work at the World Bank facilitated that? Sure. So I'll go back a little bit further. When I was working in the United Nations, it was at a time when energy was not really seen as a development priority. And when the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon came in, he had grown up in post-war Korea and had a very visceral, empirical tie to energy access because he grew up studying under candlelight and not having electricity often. And so he decided to, with our help, try to make energy higher up on the radar, higher up on the priority list of the ambassadors and the diplomats at the United Nations. And so we worked for several years in New York and Geneva and, and Vienna and Nairobi to, well, basically try to educate and convince the ambassadors, the representatives to the United Nations from the 199 or 200 countries at the UN that energy was fundamental to economic development and peace. And those are the two main focus areas of the United Nations and certainly the two main focus areas of the member states or the countries in the global south. And we were successful in doing that to a certain degree. The Millennium Development Goals, which were in place when the period I'm talking about, I did not have energy among them. And as the new Sustainable Development Goals were formed, we managed to get energy as one of the, I believe, 17 Sustainable Development Goals, along with more traditional development focus areas like maternal health and education, poverty alleviation, clean water, food security, etc. And energy is now the seventh, so it's SDG7. And the focus is on energy access. It also has metrics for renewable energy and energy efficiency. And that's now fully ensconced in the UN system. It's tracked every year by various agencies within the UN system and the International Energy Agency, etc. And I think it's made a difference in how development is treated and how donor countries think about where they can make a difference. And it also allows the countries of the global south or the developing and emerging economies to uh, take loans and funding directly related to it in a slightly more direct way because they can tie it to the SDGs. So I think it's had a, a useful impact. Ban Ki-moon, um, speechwriters, came up with a nice turn of phrase which, where they said that energy was the golden thread of development. And I think, Sam, your terrific podcast here focuses a lot on climate change and clean tech, as I understand it. It's important, I think, for your listeners to understand that 
most of the countries in the global south, most of the countries that take loans from the World Bank or get assistance from the United Nations, they represent the bulk of humanity as far as population. And they do not have climate change in almost any of them as their number one priority. Their number one priority is almost always poverty alleviation and security, safety and security of the people. And then of course, freedom for the people, freedom to be educated, freedom to vote, freedom to have clean water and and food. So uh, climate change is slightly lower on their agenda. And that's why looking at things like energy access, the access to energy services is in my view, such a strong place for the UN and other international bodies to sit. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. And it's amazing how through your work with Ban Ki-moon, you were able to bring energy access into the global conversation with these world leaders. And I think a stat that always blows my mind is that there's more people today who don't have access to electricity than when electricity was invented. And so driving that energy access is more important than necessarily focusing on on facilitating clean tech across the world. But I, I am curious from your perspective, for these emerging countries in the global south, do you think it will be possible for their first energy access to be accelerated with clean energy through wind and solar? Do you see those technologies being deployed or do you think it will be kind of the same process that the United States went through the industrial revolution where we're primarily going from coal and fossil fuel-based energy and then progressing to clean energies? Or do you think it'll be more of an accelerated process towards the renewables? It's a terrific question, Sam. There used to be about five, 10 years ago, a good question like that was muddied by someone using the word leapfrogging. In other words, that the developing economies would somehow leapfrog into totally different types of energy systems. Like a lot of things in the space, the language is important and much of the discussion by people in wealthy countries comes across as patronizing to people in the global south. And of course that's true with other populations at risk and we have thankfully a lot of focus on energy justice, environmental justice in the US under this administration, which I think is really positive. But going back to the Global South, the main issues for them are cost. And so the rapid declines in the price of solar energy, most recently largely due to Chinese manufacturing and other innovations, has been a boon. And so you're seeing lots of solar energy, especially going up in developing economies. You're also seeing fossil fuel generation. So it's going to be a hybrid naturally. It depends on which country, which region, their resources they have indigenously, and obviously links to more complex things like communities and politics. And so you'll see a mix around the world of those kind of technologies, just like you're seeing it here. And so perhaps some of your listeners forget with the boom in solar, which is terrific, in the United States, that we're also the largest producer of natural gas and oil. So it's possible to have both of those things be true. And we witness that every day. 
so you are seeing a terrific explosion in, in deployment of especially solar, as I said. One of the main obstacles to deployment right now is the cost of capital. So that's the amount you have to pay back a loan or equity. But in any case, that cost of capital is much, much higher in most of the developing economies, especially than it would be here in the United States. And therefore, the projects are much, much more expensive. And cost of capital, as you know, Sam, but maybe some of your listeners need the refresh, is that for technology, renewable technologies, which have higher capital upfront costs and low to zero operating costs or low operating costs, the cost of capital makes a much bigger difference in the overall finance and economics of the project than it would with a project with slightly lower upfront capital costs, but higher O&M and fuel costs, as an example. So those are some of my reflections on what's happening. And of course, the first thing you do when you get into development or start thinking about developing economies is you never answer a question like I did to say these countries will, because they're not homogenous group. Um, there's about 160 countries we're talking about. They're all very different. But what I've tried to do there is give you a generic sense of some of the potential and pitfalls. No doubt. Well, we're asking such big questions here. And so the fact that you're able to take this non-homogenous group and give us a, a bird's eye view of what it may look like is really helpful. And I thought your point about renewables, that the cost of capital makes a much bigger difference in that sector is really valuable because it speaks to the fact that we don't only have to facilitate energy access, but need to facilitate financial access as well to enable these technologies to be deployed in the global south. But I do want to bring the conversation a little bit closer back to home for our guests and to, to talk about what the energy transition will look like here in the U.S. as well. And so in late 2022, you wrote a piece about the importance of permitting. A lot of this podcast has been around really sexy technologies and permitting isn't something that is really quite so sexy. But you talked about how only with permitting process reformation can we turn hundreds of billions of federal incentives into real projects. And so permitting reformation is finally becoming politically salient. But can you share some areas where you see permitting reform being most necessary? Sure, thanks for that question. So just to frame it a little bit, Sam, that focus on shiny things has been the case for a very long time. So in the finance and in the tech world and the climate tech space is no different. And so there's a real attraction to shiny new objects these days, especially if they have words like AI or machine learning next to them. There's a real buzz about them, and it appears that despite various bubbles and rises and falls in that kind of finance space, that remains one of the driving forces behind how much funding or at what rate new companies emerge. It's really important to keep in mind overall that technical barriers are rarely the fundamental obstacle 
in energy systems. So I'll take you back a little ways. For you, it might sound like a long time, but even 15 years, I would constantly get asked the question, is it possible to run the electricity system with 100% renewable technologies? That was the big question. The answer to that question tended to be, well, we can only get to 5, 10, 15, 20%, something like that on the power system from variable sources because we'll have a problem operational. And then, of course, understanding how to operate systems evolved, and now we're much, much higher than that, two, three, four times higher than that, even at traditional utilities. Not really too many huge technical advances, mostly understanding operations. But the answer to that question, even back then, was yes, it's technically possible. But are we actually able to do it? Are we able to get the financing for it? Are we able to do it at a reasonable economic cost? Are we able to convince communities that this is what should happen? And those become the basis for these much more important questions, really, than just focusing on shiny technology. And that is that you have to deal with the messy pieces of society, which includes community engagement, includes permitting processes, and maybe more important, it includes politics, especially in the United States. So if people are under the impression, students of this or experts are under the impression that through good analysis and good policy formation, we can get through these things along with real nice fancy tech. Well, that's some mixture of naivety and ignorance because by far the most complex challenges have to do with how we engage with communities and society. Permitting is part of that, but not even the whole part and probably not even the most difficult part. And so you don't need to look very far for bad examples of working with communities. The history is littered with bad examples. There's very few good examples of how energy systems, even extractive ones, of course, fossil fuels and mining, but also even just putting up transmission lines to move clean energy from one place to the other. That's not a new problem. It's been known in the United States that the main wind resource is, is in the Midwest away from the demand centers for 50 60 years, I mean, with detailed analysis. So that's not a new problem, but it is extremely difficult in OECD countries to build infrastructure. And the country that does not have that problem is China. And people ask, well, how is China putting up so much clean energy and so much good high voltage transmission, etc.? Well, they don't have those same issues with community engagement. They simply go through them. And so obviously that has a lot of negative consequences for society, and I'm not condoning that sort of government. But if you're asking from a technical perspective, how do you get it done? That's how you get it done. And from your perspective, do you see another way around it? Like, obviously, it community engagement's huge here in the US, but outside of, I guess, just 
pummeling communities in the way that the CCP might be doing that. Do you see there's a way to overcome these challenges of building energy transmission in the U.S. and clean energy resources in these communities? Yeah. Uh, Look, again, there's no technical obstacle to any of it. And, you know, I think it's a matter of the sort of hard, slow, detailed work of engaging community by community and sometimes even household or farm by farm along the route. And that has to be accompanied with some sort of, ideally, some sort of change in narrative. In other words, people feel and communities feel that they are participating and supporting something, a cause. Now, many of your listeners, I would imagine, would say, oh, I, I got it. The, the, the cause is climate change. But I'm afraid that that is not, in my opinion, actually the best driver for that narrative change. And we just saw, as an example, and next door to where I'm sitting, I think you are too, in Nebraska, there was some really good work by a Colorado company, Niocorp, on a mine a mining permit and they engaged with the community over and over and over again over a course of many years and now have both the social license the communities and the permitting to get started but it was not quick and the the driver at least reported by the community members was that they were supporting america they're supporting american security and they were supporting the American economy. So it was not a climate change play. And I say that because it's very important. So climate change obviously is a, a enormous threat. It's also one that's global. And these decisions tend to be local. And so drivers like security and freedom and even things like clean air and clean water tend to be much, much stronger drivers for local decisions, no matter what the federal polling says in the United States. That's a fantastic answer. And I think it speaks to how interdisciplinary these issues are. And so understanding that for one person, climate change might be the driver, but for another person, creating 10,000 jobs to build a solar plant or something like that in a rural town is really what is going to drive that. And so understanding what the community needs and how clean power or the energy transition can facilitate that is really valuable. And that, that might be a perfect segue to ask you a little bit more about what you do at the Payne Institute of Public Policy, because yes, you are an energy expert, but you're leading one of the foremost respected public policy institutes. And so would you be able to talk a little bit more about the sorts of research you're conducting there and why you chose to be the director of the Institute after being world leader at the World Bank, the UN and these other places? Yeah, sure. So thanks for the kind words, Sam. Um, So I moved to the School of Mines about four or five years ago from the World Bank. I had never been a proper academic. I hold a PhD in a technical subject, but I had never practiced as one. In other words, not been a faculty or professor. And so I came to Mines 
not really understanding the culture or environment of the academy. And it's been a wonderful transition for me. The School of Mines, as you know, and many of your listeners, is a public university, a STEM university, so it's 99% technical. It has about 6,000 students, graduate and undergraduate. And despite the name, we have lots and lots of growth in the areas that most of the young students are interested in, which are things like quantum engineering, data science, and even space mining and space resources. And so I came to campus and formed the Payne Institute in order to make a link or to help translate the very technical work of most of the faculty at the university to a wider audience and attach it to context, that is, what's happening in the world, and try to support them as well as the students in getting the word out about both the excellent work at the School of Mines, but also engaging in the wider state, national, and international discussion, which has not been the focus at the School of Mines prior to this. And so we work across disciplines. We work with people in quantum engineering, in data science, applied math, in space resources, Um, but we do have some focus on energy systems, energy policy, and critical minerals and related topics like supply chain work. And we also have a world-class capability on satellite data and satellite algorithms. So as an example, we provide the world's best information on global gas flaring. So that's used by most of the energy companies in the world, as well as the World Bank. And we also have products related to illegal fishing, to forest fires, and to security and defense related pieces. And the one I'll just say before stopping on this, I am most impressed with recently is that since day one of the war in Ukraine, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've produced a map of both the power system as well as the kinetic activity that is the bombing that's taken place in Ukraine and sent that to Ukrainian forces. So we're very proud of that and our capabilities there. So thank you for the question and allow me the advertisement for the Institute. Absolutely. Well, the the work you're doing is incredibly important and it sounds like stretches across a variety of disciplines, but is really neat how you're taking a place that historically has had a ton of technical expertise and like you said, making that connection to what's happening in the world, whether it be the war in Ukraine or satellite imagery or the next frontier of space exploration. Really neat work you're doing, Dr. Bazilian. So I know we're getting towards the end of the episode and want to be cognizant of your time. And so I just wanted to ask, as an international leader and a world policy expert, what have you learned from engaging with world leaders in these high stakes situations? I think it's something that a lot of students, entrepreneurs and up and comers really dream of. But on those high stakes stages, what have you learned? And if you have a fun story to share, please do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the the personal aspects. Look, Sam, I, I think the question I get asked, which I wasn't 
necessarily prepared for by students most often is how do I get a job at the World Bank or how do I get a job at the United Nations? Um, my answer is typically you don't and that you'd be better off focusing on getting some technical expertise and experience in other areas before trying to work in the development community. So I'll leave that there. I don't discuss that too much with the students anymore, but remember that those places, while they have a certain allure, are large, very bureaucratic organizations. And they do good work and the missions are excellent, but it's not always as cool as it, as it appears on, on TV. But I think that I learned an enormous amount being in those organizations. And I think that we started the talk with the thing I learned the most about, which is that it's very easy to be myopic in your thinking. It's the natural tendency in a deeply complex space to just focus on what's around you or what your friends or family are worried about. And what that does is limit your understanding of the world. Now, and so I think the thing I learned was that each day, you know, I have to try to understand and learn about other communities. We've talked about that importance for social license and other countries in terms of development needs. And, you know, th that education that I'm still going through was pretty clearly put into place at the World Bank not so long ago. So again, you know, say 15, 20 years ago, there was something called the Washington Consensus in Development, which essentially me meant that we were going to tell developing economies what they needed, send in slews of economists and consultants and say, hey, you, you need to take loans for X, Y, and Z. Now that's changed dramatically over the last decade or a little bit more into being reactive to what the countries say they need. And I think that's a very important set of changes and really a paradigm shift. And it belies the need for really understanding where you're working. And, and the fact that, at least in the energy space, I think in almost any, any space, we're talking about a population of roughly 5 billion people. So it's by far the majority of people living in the world that are in those countries. And so um, thinking through problems without thinking through how they might impact those 150 countries leads you to suboptimal and usually really poor decisions. So I, I guess that that's been my largest takeaway from working in the international space. Really interesting, Dr. Bazilian, and speaks to the fact that reframing, saying that us in the OECD countries and the United States, we absolutely don't have all the answers. And so understanding that, that there's cultural aspects and heritages that impact how these energy systems will be put into place in the international setting is really valuable. And asking them, what do you need is what will ultimately lead to success. I think that's a really important concept. And like you said, a paradigm shift from the colonial history that we may have. Last question for you, Dr. Bazilian. 
What is a fun fact not about Dr. Morgan Bazillion, director of the Pain Institute or world expert, but about Morgan Bazillion, the person? Well, I'll just give you my one piece that, it, you know, when you get older, you have the ability to uh, put things on your CV that you didn't put on when you were younger. In other words, when you're younger, you need to make your CV look a certain way to get your first few jobs. And so for the first 15, 20 years of my career, I've been at this for about 25 years, I only had energy jobs on my CV. And, and then once I got to a certain age and I decided to add the full CV. And so when I left university, I became a mountain guide and I worked at some of the biggest mountain guiding companies in the world and guided all, all over the world. And I finally put that on my CV maybe five years ago. And it was really interesting because the response was the only thing people my age or even younger noticed or found remotely interesting on my CV was the mountain guiding, not the UN or the World Bank. So that's a little personal piece. So I still recommend to young people to not necessarily put those kind of things on your CV until you're a little more confident about your job prospects. And what was your favorite mountain guiding excursion you did during that time? Well, they were all sort of interesting for different reasons, but I became the 10th American to climb a mountain called Cho Oyu, which is the sixth tallest peak in the world. And, um, you know, like everything else in life, I think most experiences, the older you get or more experiences you have, at least in my case, the lessons are all about humility and getting more humility. And so being there in the Himalaya and uh, being lucky enough to get to the top and more importantly, getting to the bottom uh, alive again, you know, gives, gives you an enormous amount of humility, or I always believe it should. It doesn't for all people. And so that that's the important lesson there, I think, Sam. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. That concludes today's episode. I first want to say thank you to you, Dr. Morgan Bazillion, director of the Pain Institute, world mountaineer, and energy expert for joining the show. If you like this episode of Built for Earth, please subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social media at Built Number Four Earth to stay up to date on innovators and experts taking on climate change. Until next time, this is Dr. Morgan Bazilian and Sam Beskin signing off. Thank you. Thank you.